Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. We dropped out of college. The only companies that were in Silicon Valley, this is 2006 when we dropped out, were effectively what we would classically just think of as internet companies. Like it's a search engine, it's a marketplace, it's a you know place for social media. So it was pure software companies solving software problems. Um, and uh, and that if was- If you go far enough south, you hit some chip companies. Yeah, exactly. So yes, yeah, <laughs> somewhere somewhere somebody has a, a big semiconductor plant, and, and but like you didn't go there. Like, like that was 10 miles south. San Jose. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, you know, the uh, too far away. It's a familiar story in tech history. College friends stumble onto a big idea, drop out to pursue it, build a company, make mistakes, and eventually take that company public and make millions of dollars. That's Apple, that's Microsoft, that's Facebook, and that's Box. Aaron Levy is the co-founder and CEO of Box, a company founded at the dawning of the cloud era. The basic idea, wouldn't it be great if we could store all kinds of digital files on the internet and teams could work on them at the same time instead of emailing them around? Well, the answer is yes, that would be great. And Levy and his friends built a company now worth nearly $3 billion, proving it. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of great ways. Mainly, just subscribe so this gets to you automatically. Why worry about it every week? The cloud thing seems obvious now, but when Levy was 20 years old and co-founded Box 12 years ago, it was far from it. I started covering him and the company in the early years of that journey, and I sat down with him days ago at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square to catch up. At the wizened old age of 32, Aaron's got a fresh take on advice he should have heeded and where Silicon Valley needs to go next. Here's Aaron Levy. What brings you to town? Um, we are in town for a bunch of stuff. We just uh, had a financial services lunch, so working with a lot of the banks now, insurance companies, kind of retail banks, investment banks, and helping them modernize the way that they collaborate and share in the cloud. So just just came from that. Had some good scallops. So mm. if I smell like scallop, uh, that's that's where it came from. So. That's, yeah. Scallops yeah. is like a financial services. You have food. to take financial services people to scallops. It's uh, they need something that's like high-end seafood if you're going to get their business. So. That's spoken like a man who's been the co-founder and CEO of a public company for quite a while. Yeah, two and a half years, more than. So this is uh, this is what we do these days. We do scallop lunches with uh, with <laughs> banks. That's that's what the uh, life of being public is. When you were a startup, you took lots of shots at big public companies yep. and the cloud was like this upstart thing and it wasn't clear if the big guys were ever gonna get it. Yeah, It looks like the big guys kinda got it. Right. And yet you have still managed to stay in the fight. Like they were, after your IPO, big doubts, 
Stock went down. Right. I was one of the Don't people who was me. saying, oh, man. hey, the stock is pretty richly valued. for," But there's some there there. Okay. So okay. Yeah. I'm not saying throw in the <laughs> towel on this company, right. but... Watch it, but don't buy. <laughs> it's not my job to say buy or don't buy, but you know. You know, no, I, that, that's I, what I the landscape you. was. But you have stayed in the hunt, yeah. stayed in the fight. Yeah. You're sort of like, you're practically veteran now, two and a half I, years. I as a mean, public my company. gray hair proves it. <laughs> I, I, if I don't get veteran status after uh, what I've been through, um, no, it's been it's been interesting. I think the honestly the so the stock's been up and down, and fortunately right now we're we're in a, a pretty good period with the the market and with the stock specifically. Um, for us, so we've been doing this for twelve and a half years, and the only reason you would do anything for twelve and a half years straight with no kind of distractions is you'd have to love what you're doing, and you'd have to believe that um, that the long term potential of what you're building and where you're going and what your customers you know are are able to do because of your technology is is so exciting and that you think that you're going to do it in a way that lets you uh, uh, succeed and, and stay competitive so the reason that that you know we, we kept going and the reason that we competed with some of the biggest incumbents and the reason that we kept going when uh, when it didn't look like the market was going to be necessarily res you know responsive to uh, to our stock and why we, we kept at it was because we felt like in the next still you know a couple of of years and decade that there's going to be a profound amount of change with how companies manage their information how they work how they share how they collaborate how they secure their data and that all of those things were going to align to what we've been building for now 12 years so that that's why we kept at it and, and uh, again fortunately eventually the market kind of caught up to to uh, to where we were in the story and and our numbers kept improving and i know that one of the big the big challenges, and this will just sound like a being public therapy session, but you know, <laughs> the, one of the big challenges for us was we were burning a lot of capital when when we went public, and so I I actually don't. Which is a fancy way of saying you were losing money. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a higher brow way of saying we were burning lots of cash. So um, the uh, uh, for us um, for us it, it was funny because we knew exactly why we were doing it. The str the strategy was get big fast, build a. A leadership position in this very very large market that we felt was going to be worth tens of billions of dollars establish ourselves as the leading platform and then eventually you, you get profitable once you're at that point and what the challenge was is the market didn't quite see that because they thought it was a very competitive industry maybe it gets commoditized why are you having to spend so much capital and it just took us longer than i guess we we initially realized to both better communicate the strategy to wall street as well as have the numbers improve to a point where where you could start to see that story play out, and so honestly, that that was on us. That was our fault. I I I don't blame the market. The 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 uh, we were not good at at maybe describing our story well enough right when we went public, and and frankly, um, I think the appetite for companies that were were spending that much cash were was was sort of less. Um, there was less uh, interest at that time. And I think, in a way, the market was right. The old, the original box. Hey, look! You can store stuff in the right, cloud. Right. That did get commoditized. Yeah, hundred percent. You and everybody else, though, moved up market. You were something yeah. different right. than what most people thought you were. You know, right. the whole freemium model. Right. Hey, my my roommate and I just right. got Box.com account, so we can <laughs> store stuff in the cloud. Yep. The 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 get big fast part of that was yep. telling people we're cloud storage. Right. But then you went public, and you're like, yeah, we're not just cloud storage. Right. Right. I think we um, we probably underestimated the markets, maybe lagging uh, in understanding that, that we had made that evolution years prior. So when we started the company, to your point, so we started the company in 2005 in college. The idea was let's make a really easy way to share files and collaborate. We dropped out of college and uh, and said, okay, what is the real ultimate business that, that we could build here? And, and in 2006, 2007, we 
made the, the choice that uh, in the consumer space, it was going to be very commoditized. You weren't going to be making a lot of money. It was going to be low gross margin, and you'd have competitors like Apple and Google and Microsoft and Facebook, and everybody would give you free storage. And so we said, we have to become an enterprise company. This is the only viable business model that we have ahead of us. We've got to sell the big business. Got to sell the big businesses. And you, know, you start with small businesses, and then you start with teams and big businesses, and then eventually you, you become secure enough and, and trusted enough for large enterprises. So in 2007, we, we did your classic Silicon Valley pivot, and we, we pivoted really hard. We said, you know, we're going to do away with the consumer business. We're only going to go enterprise. And for that subsequent now 10 years effectively, we've been just marching up market and, and, and kind of going up and up and up market with deeper security, deeper compliance, deeper ways of working with large enterprises. And fortunately now we're, you know, our customer base is General Electric and Eli Lilly and Procter and & Gamble and the Department of Justice and Metropolitan Police of London. So highly regulated industries, highly you know, security conscious and very data sensitive types of businesses. Um, and, uh, and I think what we, you know, during the IPO process, we probably didn't do a good enough job telling that story that we had actually moved as, as far up market as we had. And so there was some confusion about the economics. But, but at this stage, we're, we, we are fortunate that that's all kind of behind us. I think the, the market understands the story now. We, we became um, cash flow positive uh, this year. We, we, we told the market that we'll be fully uh, cash flow positive for the year. We're at a, a little over half a billion dollars in revenue now uh, was the guidance that we gave this year. So we're, we think we're on sort of a better foundation. And I think the numbers just look very different from when we, we initially went public. And you are how old now? Um, me personally? Yeah. I'm 32. Half a billion dollars in revenue. Yes. You've been running and gunning for a long time. 12 yeah. years? Yeah. Is what you said. So since you were 20. Right. Now you're 32, half a billion dollars in revenue. You ever have a chance to take a breath and take it in? Because every time I see you... I just get older. <laughs> well, fortunately, we both get older. We haven't attended each other's funerals. Right, either right. Yeah, yeah, so fair point. That's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but you, you, you're going. You're right, going. Right. You're talking fast. You're right, moving. You're looking right. over your shoulder. That's right? just coffee, yeah. But, uh, but still, you're always <laughs> drinking coffee. I'm always drinking coffee. Yeah. The, uh, I think, actually, there has been a, a correlation to age and the amount of coffees that I need to be able <laughs> to be competent. So, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the the... For us, I think what's what's so fascinating about technology, I think we, we get a, an extreme view of this uh, just on where we are in the industry and the space that we occupy, but there's literally not a week that goes by where there's not some fundamental change in the market that we have to respond to strategically or technically or... But I'm what? talking about you now. Okay, fine. 12 well, years. Yeah, yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. 12 years. Yeah. A couple of gray hairs in there okay. at 32, just a couple. I'd say more than a couple, yeah. All right, people can zoom in on the yeah. photo, but... <laughs> What does it mean? What has it meant? Yeah. Because kind of like 30 years after Steve Jobs dropped out of college and started mm -hmm. a company, you dropped out of college and started a company, and now you've been in the thick of this cloud thing that now everybody's talking about yeah. for more than a decade. Yeah. What does it mean to have been part of that generation, that, you know, Instagram, mm -hmm. box, mm. you know, post.com meltdown. Right tech entrepreneurial generation that's still in the fight? Interesting. Um, I think the, uh, well, I, I don't know. The, the, for me, it's, it's uh, when I was growing up and in middle school and high school, had lots of random internet uh, ideas with, with uh, ultimately my co-founders of Vox. So, so we had all grown up uh, together. We had gone to middle school and high school together in Seattle. And so um, and we'd always dreamt of uh, what if we could build a real company out of the things that we were doing. And in high school, it's just random internet projects and you're kind of doing it for, 
for you know on the side and and uh, and now what's a middle schooler doing dreaming about building a company? Um, it turns out when you discover that you can put web pages on the internet uh, when you're 13 and 14, um, you put a lot of web pages on the internet. So <laughs> we just started you know started with GeoCities obviously like everybody else, but then started building applications and and so now I think the I think for us we're we're just living the sort of dream of of what we wanted to do. So for me, I come into work every day and it's like. It's it's kind of like being a, a kid in a candy factory where there's there's you now have the ability to go build you know anything that, that that the team puts its mind to and and there's just unlimited opportunity. So I think it's I think we maybe we haven't stepped back and you know thought about what what we've been through, but but more we tend to be just focused on what the future is and and we we have a foundation that gives us the ability to now build on top of 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 uh, of a lot of. Um, uh, I think, you know, uh, uh, I guess we have a foundation that lets us go accomplish a lot of things that, that we want to go do, and I think that's what we tend to focus on. So um, uh, I don't know what, what other, you know, peers feel like, but... Your co-founder. Yeah. Still the CFO. Yeah. Chief financial officer. Yeah. That is usually a job where you go and find, you know, when you're going public, you go and find somebody who's been a chief yep. financial officer for two or three companies and joined private <laughs> equity, right. gotten many more gray hairs than you have, and right. you, you bring that person in to calm down all the financial services people and feed them scallops. Yep. <laughs> right? Because yep. they know all the scallop places they in know New York the best because places. they've done it before. They've been to four eras of scallop uh, restaurants. Um, <laughs> Either that or you take <laughs> your co-founder out at the knees. Right. Right? Yeah, but then you just get sued, so you don't want to do that. Well, some people seem to do okay, and yet the, the, still do the that. Winklevi aren't too happy. But they're not. But they, you know, but there's Jobs and there's Wozniak. Right, right, right. There's I, why has it worked? Yeah, and, and I, I mean, I should expand it even further. I have a couple other other co-founders that that uh, that we've been able to build the company with. But yeah. the um, but with Dylan directly um, was the first first uh, uh, founder that kind of dropped out with me. Um, uh, he so he's our CFO and uh, he runs more than our financial organization now. So he has got IT and he's got um, our HR organization. So he's got a lot of the kind of core functions of Box. Um, you know, one is is he's just been a great partner to build the company with, and so it's it's very helpful to have somebody that you can trust on the other side that you know that that you know if the stock goes up or it goes down or this deal closes or you lose it or there's this issue in the business or 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 whatnot. He's going to be by your side, and we're going to be able to deal with these challenges together. And it's not like I'm ever, you know, questioning is he going to be in this for the long run to go solve the problem. So that that's really helpful, and it's really helpful, especially in a CFO, um, because that that's ultimately going to be your, in many cases, thought partner for driving the the just the core engine of the business and how you're going to fund it and how you're going to scale it. So um, so he's he's been great on that dimension. He's scaled incredibly well. So uh, uh, just in terms of his capacity for learning and growing as a leader. Sure. Uh, and then and then ultimately uh, the credit goes to him building a team who uh, are is a pretty amazing team. And so when I look at the leadership team in finance or IT or the HR organization, he's just been able to build a, a great organization that's let us. Go and, and focus on you know a bunch of other things as we've as we scaled up. So the the testament I think that that to his position and what he's been able to do is because he's built a great team below him that um, that lets him you know uh, be a great CFO in front of Wall Street and uh, and within the organization. So so we've we've definitely tried something that is relatively unprecedented. I think when we went public, he was maybe the youngest or one of the youngest you know CFOs on on uh, on Wall Street. And um, and I think he's he's uh, continued to execute incredibly well. Works well with the financial analysts and and, and investors, 
Uh, he's a data sort of wonk, and so he spends all of his time within the numbers, and that gives just him such a strong grasp of the business when working with investors and strategically internally. And so I think he's done a great job sort of um, uh, moving into that role of, uh, of being a public CFO. Were you ever kind of pre-IPO or since genuinely tempted to sell? I think um, pre-IPO, we were, we had to have the conversation. So, um, and uh, and there had been some, some, some uh, kind of offers, offers uh, that, that have flowed around the company and um, and that sort of forces you to have the, the conversation of what are we really in this for mm-hmm. um, and what are the, the real motivations behind what we're doing and it's it, there's really nothing more clarifying uh, of your motivations and what you're trying to build than, than having that, that ultimate binary decision of should you sell the company or should you keep running it. Tell me what that's like. Who do you have that conversation with? Where do you go? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was extremely stressful. I mean, uh, and and it's it's funny because high class problems like this is not this is <laughs> like I mean it's not like like there <laughs> there's about uh, thirty million more stressful things in the world that have happened to you than than this. But it was stressful because it made us question like what did we want to do in our lives? And and th- that one of the offers came in in our when we were in our our kind of mid to late twenties, and and we really had to kind of think through. Like, did we want to build a company for the long run, or, or was this were we just doing this for a financial return? And and um, and so we we got to a point where or yeah, do you want to build another company yeah. and not have to go through as many of the hard times as you did building this one because you'd actually have mm. millions of dollars? I'd love to meet the people that you think that the second time is that, that who think the second time was easier. Well, but. people, <laughs> it's, it's easy to have these thoughts. Right. Okay. No, no, that's true. We've got an offer, like, yeah. a, like a lottery ticket, yeah. a winning lottery ticket sitting uh, well, on the table well, in front of you. Well, actually, funny enough, we we uh, we did these brainstorms uh, for a few weeks, and and in the brainstorm, we was, it was, and this was my my uh, my co-founders in the brainstorm, it was sort of like, okay, let's say you did this, what would we go do next if 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 uh, if we ended up selling? And actually, everything looked worse than what we were doing because we had been through, we had already been through four or five years of building up the company at that point. And it was like, we have already done enough things that were against all of the odds to get to where we were. Do we really want to try this again? Like we haven't, you, you, you know, I think the scary thing about the startup world is because of how chaotic it is, because of how dynamic it is. The only learning I've mostly figured out from on this dimension is that that you, you do land on these sort of fortuitous moments with the right founding team and the right market and the market's timed perfectly and you meet the right investor. And so you don't really like, at least from my perspective, I haven't learned anything that gets me any better of a position to do it again, uh, because I just know how many things had to land perfectly at the right time in the, in the one time that it did work. Um, and so, so I don't think we wanted to, to you know, try our hand at that again. What we wanted to do is compound from the position that we were at. And the ultimate, the ultimate question was, do we think there's vastly more growth ahead of us than behind us? And, and what do we think the chance of us being able to actually compete with these big incumbents is uh, relative to kind of what we've already done? And we came out with the conclusion that the market was so much larger than, than what, it, what, it, what we had accomplished. So there was so much more opportunity. Right. And it was going to be risky as shit to go after it. We had no, we had no uh, sort of, we, we, were, we had no sort of illusion that, that, that we were somehow in this really strong competitive position. We knew how risky and unlikely it was that we were going to win, but the market was so big and the opportunity was to us so attractive and the culture of the, the company was something we still wanted to kind of keep building up and scaling that we just decided to go for it. And so as soon as we said no, 
at that time, it made it very easy in the future to not even have the conversation. Because we knew that we knew that the key factors were our opportunity, the, the market, and our culture. And as long as those three things didn't change to the negative, we would not be interested at any point, you know, in in in, in selling. And so uh, so since then it hasn't been kind of stressful at all. We just decided let's scale an independent company. What's the piece of advice? You know, if you had the DeLorean and you went back in time and you were talking to your 20-something-year-old self. I guess I shouldn't say 20-something because you might just be going back three years at this you, point. You would so, still need a DeLorean. Yeah, though, you would so. still need a DeLorean. Okay. It doesn't make it any easier. But say you're early 20s, early okay. 20s. All right, now you really need a DeLorean, yeah. Yeah. What advice do you give that maybe either sets your mind at ease or hmm. you know, either makes you more cautious or more embracing of risk? Um, I think that I think the lessons that I've I've learned on on kind of this dimension are one is you, you, the more you can have an incredibly clear and aligned north star, just it solves a lot of problems. Mm. It, the the hardest strategies to execute are those where where you aren't exactly clear on what you're trying to do long term, because then long term long term the longer the term actually the better because. Um, because you don't ever know what's going to happen next year or next or, or next you know six months even in this industry, but what you can know is where you're trying to go in five years or ten years. That that you can have a goal around, and uh, and and the clearer you are, the the more precise you are on what that long term vision is. It can still be very broad. It can be it can be grandiose, but the clearer you are on that, the easier it is to make the ten thousand decisions that you're going to have on a you know on an annual basis in the company. Like, Did you ever have a hazy north star period? Yeah, yeah, and that was in the beginning stage, like from two thousand five to maybe two thousand seven, two thousand eight. It was we we went lots of different directions, and the, it's only until we we were insanely clear and aligned on exactly what we were trying to build over the long run. Did we and until then we were not executing at sort of full velocity. So is that are we trying to serve everybody yeah, or exactly. are we trying to focus on business? And that can, exactly. So that can be what your market is. That can be what your product is. That can be the things you say yes and no to. That can be you know big strategic things. That can be very narrow micro you know kind of issues that you deal with. And so as soon as we got that north star, then we could make all of the daily decisions that that you know happen in a business much more rapidly with a clear framework for, is this aligned to our North Star of powering how companies work and, and, and helping them manage their data um, and, uh, or not? And so that was one. Uh, so one is just being very clear in your North Star and the mission and, and, and making sure that's sort of ingrained into everything you do. The other is, is culture. And, um, and the, it sounds like this cliche. And when you're a startup, you sort of, you almost think of it as a cliche because you're just like, hey, like I know the culture. It's just these 30 people that I'm working with. But for as you scale up, you actually realize that that you have to be incredibly disciplined and explicit at, at maintaining that culture and curating it and and evolving it and making sure that it gets um, uh, you know maintained in a way that that when you're at seventeen hundred people, it still resembles what what you intended it to to resemble and it still has the same kind of values that that you wanted it to have. So. So I think going back, I would I would have been even more emphatic on on how important that is to maintain because that's um, that's the core of, of your organization. I mean, we're in people driven businesses in, in technology, and if you don't have that part right, then you know nothing works. How do you prune a culture? Right now, we're seeing across Silicon Valley, Hollywood, yeah. other places, organizations realizing in the name of growth yeah. or in the name of profit. We let some things go. Yep. Behavior of Harvey Weinstein yep. or Kevin Spacey or yep. fill in the blank, and maybe we shouldn't have. Um, you know, you you might look back on the way you 
started a company or ran a company in your early 20s and go, oh my goodness, can't yeah. believe we did that or allowed for that or whatever. How do you course correct when the priority has been, at least for a period of time, yeah. let's get as big as we can yeah. as fast as we can? I, well, you know, and all of this only works retroactively. So that, that's the, you know, it, it's everything's so easy in hindsight. But, but at least from my perspective, I don't believe there has to be a trade off between growth and, and having strong values and having a you know, very strong core culture and, and pruning it. I don't think those things are in conflict at all. I think the thing that, that happens, maybe it's because you're scaling, maybe it's because of other distractions. What happens is you lose the discipline to ensuring that you're maintaining that culture. Those two things are not contradictory whatsoever. I don't think you could hire 10,000 people and still fire the ones that, that don't align to the values of your organization and don't maintain the, the values of your organization. You can make decisions quickly. You can have a collaborative organization. You can have a consensus-driven organization. You can have a, 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 an organization where people are individually empowered and still not have assholes that, that are able to stay around in the organization. You can do all of those things. I think the challenge is, is do you have the discipline to maintain that? Do you have the, do you know your principles in the first place? Are they actually, and until you see enough circumstances, sometimes you don't even know what your principles have to be. Maybe I'm asking the wrong person, but what if you had the wrong principles starting out and then you kind of grow up and realize, well, we got some things wrong. Yes, and so in that case, <laughs> in that case, it, it's helpful to be surrounded by people that have seen how companies can go wrong. And so we were maybe lucky that early on, uh, as we defined our core values, the core values ended up reflecting things that we felt would create a, a culture that, that as we scaled, we would not, we would have less, you know, of these kinds of issues that, that, that you're thinking about. And we were fortunate because we have a, we had a chief operating officer very early on that, that you know, had a, 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 a framework for how to think about that. We had early people in, in marketing or HR that, that also kind of felt that same way. And so in our case, we were able to write down principles that, that we felt um, were going to be really important. And, and the, the challenge is there's always a gray area as you scale up. And, and it's the, the key is to have ideally a zero tolerance policy to when those principles aren't, aren't sort of uh, live by. And, the, the, and do you give people a, a, a second chance if they are a jerk or an asshole? And, they, but, but, and you know, how much feedback do you give versus, versus you know, somebody's not going to work out for your environment? And how much do you trust your judgment about an individual versus letting the data kind of play out. All of these things are, this is, there's a remarkable amount of just, you know, uh, qualitative ways that you have to deal with this stuff. But, um, but in general, I think if you, if you have good principles and you live by them and you scale them uh, with, with, in a disciplined way, I think you can prevent this issue of the rapid growth is, is in conflict with, with creating a, a, a good culture. Tell me about Mark Cuban. Yeah. In early box yeah. war. Um, so uh, he was our technically kind of first big angel investor. Yeah, we invested, we got his, uh, his funding. Um, we had a couple of kind of earlier investors that, that came on board, but he was the kind of first big name investor. We had sent him an email um, just saying, hey, uh, would you be interested in learning about Box? And, and you found his email address? It was not hard to find back then. So no. in, in, 2000, <laughs> in 2005, if you were on the internet, you, you could get a hold of Mark Cuban. Um, so uh, you'll, you'll uh, remember Blog Maverick. Um, yeah. And so I think he had, his web, he had his email like everywhere in every post. So we, uh, we emailed him and said, hey, are you interested in, uh, in, in our company? We actually initially just wanted him to write about it. And, uh, and then he came back and, and was interested in funding it. And, and through kind of a month or two process of due diligence, he decided to fund the business, and um, and it was it was really due to him that, that we decided to drop out of college, 
he gave us the kind of impetus to say, wow, we actually have a, a, a business here that could work. Um, and uh, uh, and then eventually uh, kind of scaled things up. Unfortunately, we, we ultimately had a disagreement on, uh, on the, the fundamental kind of strategy of the business. And so we parted ways um, after about a year and a half, but uh, it was fun to have him while, while he was there. What was the disagreement? Disagreement, well, there was a couple of things. One was we wanted to have a freemium product, mm -hmm. um, to your point about kind of giving away for free. He was very, uh, he's very interested in cash flow. Um, and so it's, it, you know, now with the, the benefit of time and, and now my veteran status, um, it, it's funny because I'm actually, I give, I give the advice he gave to us, to other people, um, <laughs> which is like, fucking cash flow is good. Um, and I couldn't quite see it at the time of why it was so important. And so I agree with his philosophy. I still think that in our particular market and situation, we, we had to do what we had to do. Um, but I give his advice because I've just learned how, the importance of cash flow. Huh. So was his approach at all similar to what the uh, folks watching TV at home see on Shark Tank? <laughs> um, I don't know if I would say his approach, but I would say his personality is. So uh, if you can imagine Mark Cuban's personality, but in written form, um, that's mostly it was our interaction. So emails have, in some cases, all caps, some cases sort of uh, sporadic kind of major points and, and minor points. And so um, he certainly writes like he talks and thinks. And, uh, and what, was, uh, what was cool is um, it'd be hard to have any better champion you know, involved in your company than somebody like Mark Cuban. Um, just his energy and, and the, the passion that he has for businesses that he's involved in. And of course, at some point that, that can extend to then ultimately deciding to, that, that there's not a fit for him. Um, that, that actually was his, was his decision um, because I think one day he just decided he's not passionate about our particular business model. But, um, uh, but yeah, he's, he is like he is on TV. So. You still talk to him? It's been 10 years since he was an investor. We, uh, I, we, every year or so we have uh, an email exchange on something going on. So. But uh, <laughs> no, he's still, uh, uh, well, we still try and stay in touch. How much do you let your personality, your humor, kind of imbue who you are as a CEO and a leader of your company? I know you've been um, prolific on Twitter, mm. um, but being prolific on Twitter doesn't mean the same thing in 2017 that it meant in 2013. Uh, no, it's, uh, I think it's quite easy to be prolific on Twitter these days. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, on a different meaning. Yeah, it, uh, it, it really implies different things, but the, um, uh, I, I don't, I mean, I, I guess my, for me, uh, the way I see it is that um, uh, I want to, I, I, I see work and, and life as pretty intermingled, and so I want to create a, an environment and a culture where Ideally, you can just be yourself at work, um, and you can be yourself in, in whatever the, the format or, or venue is. And so, um, so I you know this I, I just try and bring my personality to whatever the, the, the situation is, and it's not particularly strategic. And sometimes it, it probably I'd probably be better off not bringing my personality into certain situations. I have tweets that I've needed to delete because they're probably a little bit too trollish. Um, mm. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, but other than that, I yeah I'm just you know trying to be myself. Well, you never be president deleting your tweets. No, you got to uh, stand by every one. Every single one. Double down. Um, the uh, yeah, <laughs> Twitter and presidencies are a uh, interesting thing these days. So, um, you've been in Silicon Valley for what a decade now? Over yeah, over a decade. How has it changed? Um, I think uh, you know it's interesting. I, I'd say uh, strategically, it's changed in the sense that when we dropped out of college, the only companies that were in Silicon Valley, this is two thousand six, when we dropped out, were effectively what we would 
classically just think of as internet companies. Like it's a search engine, it's a marketplace, it's a you know place for social media. So it was pure software companies solving software problems. Um, and uh, and that if was- If you go far enough south, you hit some chip companies. Yeah, exactly. So yes, yeah, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere somebody has a, a big semiconductor plant, and, and, but like you didn't go there. Like, like that was 10 miles south. San Jose. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, you know, the, uh, too far away. So, so that was when we dropped out. And, um, and, uh, uh, and I think, you know, in the past decade, what's been, I think, exciting and, and hopefully symbolic of, of, uh, of, of broader positive changes that there's been more internet companies started to solve much either harder problems or, or problems that go beyond the internet. So things that, that you know, just impact everybody's daily lives. And so that could be transportation, that could be um, healthcare, that could be life sciences. Uh, financial services, and so I think people eventually realize that between the mobile phone and cloud computing, we have the ability to build software that that can change ultimately any industry. And that's the uh, on the positive side, consumers should hopefully get better services. They should get better experiences. It brings competition into so many markets that maybe previously didn't have competition. Mm -hmm. uh, on the I don't know this, uh, on the challenge side, not necessarily negative side, but on the challenge side, I don't know that Silicon Valley has been prepared for that. So when you think about the regulatory challenges, the uh, human or social impact challenges of some of these businesses, um, I think it's caught Silicon Valley by surprise because we've traditionally been this sort of isolated model where you build a website and you launch it and people use it and, and that is sort of your controlled universe. And now these either websites or these digital services are impacting people's jobs, they're impacting the democracy, they're impacting the, the delivery of healthcare. And it's changing people's understanding about the responsibility that these technology companies have. So on one hand, uh, optimistically, it's incredibly exciting because we know that that we know that the potential is to deliver better services to consumers, make goods cheaper, give people more access to healthcare, give people better education. On the challenges side, if you're not preparing your organization, if you're not empathetic to the community that you're impacting. Uh, then you can create a lot of negative consequences. You know, I think just the the congressional stuff this week with uh, with internet companies is is an example of that. Which is, I think, most social media companies have been caught by surprise as to the negative uh, potential consequences and use cases for their platforms uh, when when it comes to you know sort of slightly uh, impacting our, our democracy or why, how we think about news or why is that a surprise? Why is that a surprise? Be because yeah. because <laughs> I, I saw mean, your head shaking. I didn't know which way you're going to go. No, I okay. mean, <laughs> I want your take on yeah. this because, as you know, I, I lived in the valley for about 14 years. Yeah, been here on the east coast for about four. Yep, and. I feel like there's yep. this near religious belief in the valley. Yes, that technology is inherently good. Yep, and yes, it can do all kinds of things, and there are all kinds of possibilities. But the fear and paranoia in the valley tends to be around competition. Yes, and around having a not business cases, model yeah. that's not quite good enough. Right, not around maybe this technology isn't inherently yep. good. Yep. maybe it's just like a weapon yep. that can be used for defense or offense. And maybe we ought to think about what happens if this weapon, yeah. to quote the cartoons, falls into the wrong hands, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I think you've, you've, I mean, you just hit it. I think, the, um, I think that the origin of so many of these companies is that for one set of use cases, for one problem that was being solved, this was the right technology to solve that problem. And so you, you, at the founding level, of whether it's Twitter or Facebook or Google, there's this, there's the a, an optimistic 
um, uh, utilitarian point of view to what, what we're trying to do. In Twitter's case, it was, it was just catching up with friends and, and telling people what, what your status is. In Facebook's case, it's understanding the, your, your college peers. Uh, in Google's case, it's like letting you find any kind of information on the internet. All three of those founding stories, I would say, are generally optimistic stories about what technology should be able to do for us. We should be able to communicate, we should be able to know what, what our family members are up to, what our college friends are up to, and we should be able to search and find things on the internet. So it's information faster. Yes, it's information, but, 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 but that's, even that was a little bit more, that, that even was probably more, not dystopian, but, but even more utilitarian than I think the, like the founding stories of these companies are, right. like, are just like these fun social things yeah. that are gonna help people's lives. Uh -huh. and, and what happens is as they scale, you start to see the more pernicious use cases and consequences uh, of these technologies. And I think that, I think, I, 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 there's a 0% chance that in the founding of Google, Facebook, or Twitter, there was a conversation of what if, you know, a, uh, a foreign nation decides to use one of these platforms to impact the flow of information, you know, in our, in our country, right? Like, because you have five users, you're not, you're not thinking that, that through. And so, so I think you, at the core of the, the core uh, of the founding of these companies is a more utilitarian, hopefully op optimistic set of use cases for these technologies. Or on the worst side of the spectrum, naivete. Yes. Like it's kind of like inventing nuclear power and yes. thinking this is going to be great for just electricity. <laughs> right. Nobody will ever blow anything yeah. up with it. I mean, probably almost nearly most bad uh, uh, things that have ever been created probably started as not intending to be that bad. So, so now, now, fast forward many years later, hundreds of millions of people are on these platforms. We now, uh, the human imagination is, is vast and people have figured out ways of using these technologies for very different things than their purposes are. And so now you have this fundamental question, which is, are you, are you still in the utility business? Are you still just a pipe company? Or given the consequential nature of the, the tools you've built, do you have to step in and have a different role? And this is, this is something that, that I don't know if any company's figured out uh, that they're in these kind of positions that they're grappling with, which, mm -hmm. is, which is we started out as a pipes company and as a utility company because we had this optimistic view. There's, non, there's less optimistic ways of using these technologies. And, uh, and so what is, that, what is that role? And then when we, if we change our role, now all of a sudden we take on a very different status because then you talk about censorship, then you're talking about what information do you control? How do you tweak the algorithm to, to show somebody different information or, or, or whatnot? Who gets to be the editorial board to make these decisions? And honestly, I don't, nobody's, nobody has a good answer for any of these questions. Uh, I, I think it's good that we're having the conversation. I'm probably more, personally, I probably am more pragmatic as opposed to kind of maybe let's say the opposite being libertarian, which is like the platform should be freely open and anything can happen on them. I, I think that, that we have to probably think through like, like what does happen when, when your algorithm it, you know, can impact the, all of the news that, that certain people see. Do we need to think that through at all? But can you still be Silicon Valley in this hot yeah, bed right. of innovation and possibility and all that if at the same time you let the inkling slip into your mind that maybe this could go wrong. Does that create just the amount of drag on that hmm. innovation engine that slows you down? Because yeah. so much of what you hear from entrepreneurs and founders is, I completely believed the idea yeah. our ability to change the world and I had yeah. to completely believe it. Does that concept of doubt, yeah. of fear, put on too much drag? Um, I, I don't, th I, I think in, if for incumbents it could. 
I think that there's a renewable source of energy within Silicon Valley and the internet ecosystem broadly, which is that there's some founder that hasn't experienced that drag, that has a new idea and they build some new service and and uh, and he or she you know puts it together and, and doesn't think through the the, the, the consequences in, in this particular case and they build it and, and scale it up. So I, I think it you know let's just let's I, I hypothesize that tomorrow Congress decides that that you know at all uh, all algorithms must be reviewed by the new uh, federal algorithm committee and and, <laughs> and they decide uh, what uh, what things uh, have what weighting and what propensity to show what data. Obviously, that would grind, you know, a Twitter or a, a Facebook to a halt to the point where you would be like, "How do I innovate within this culture if everything I do is going to go through a federal review process?" And but but there are some industries where that's literally the case. If you're in the energy industry, if you're in life sciences, that's literally what the FDA's job is. That's that's literally what the Department of Energy is 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 going to be doing. And so um, so you do have this this interest and and what what has made Silicon Valley obviously this hotbed of of so many different types of ideas at any time is because there hasn't been that review body where you haven't had to put things through. So I think that um, I think that it would be hard for incumbents to maintain this level of innovation and momentum if if we move to the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which is everything gets regulated. Um, but I'm, I would be hopeful that right now they're having conversations to try and proactively get ahead of that and try and, be, and, try and figure out better solutions to these problems. Uh, because I don't think that it's, I think it's pretty clear, and I'm just literally reading the tweets on this, so the, but, but I'd, I'd imagine that it's probably not possible for us to be in a sustainable position right now, which is that the internet is just gonna be flowing with misinformation at any given time because now we're actually messing with the very democracy of the country in some cases, which is going to probably make people start to want to regulate it. Yeah, in a way one would hope. Um, so what do you want to see technologically in the world that doesn't exist yet? Hmm. Well, one, a DeLorean. Um, yes. So, so uh, I'm sure you A time-traveling DeLorean. A time-traveling DeLorean. We have the actual yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, heavy sorry. sports I car. Yeah. I should have clarified. Right? Not right. just a... Not just a uh, really expensive car, but um, the um, uh, so mostly Elon Musk's roadmap is what I'm looking for. So I'd like to be able to go to Australia in 30 minutes. Um, so I'm glad he's working on that Earth to Earth uh, space travel. So that's kind of neat. Um, uh, I you know th there's there is I'm I'm just an eternal optimist. So I think that there's uh, when you just look at like the world's problems. I don't think you can solve them because of like AI or algorithms, but what you can do is you can put technology toward many of these problems and you can start to, to actually impact, again, healthcare or life sciences or education or in many cases, positively the democracy uh, with the combination of, of technology and, and how people end up interacting with these, these tools. So um, I'm hopeful that, that Silicon Valley will more and more figure out that the role the role of this innovation ecosystem is to is to not necessarily be just disruptive and 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 find you know interesting gaps in a in a business model and disrupt it and you know try and destroy as many jobs as possible but but instead look at those gaps and say this is leaving out a, a ma major group of consumers this is this is leaving an opening for a very different cost structure to deliver a service to people that, that previously didn't have it. Like that's where it gets really cool. So um, uh, those are the more exciting businesses. Those are the more exciting kind of startups that are out there that are kind of finding what if we could take something that was only available to one small set of the market and bring it to the masses. Um, and uh, and that's the the stuff that, that that I get pretty excited about. 
How many employees do you have now? Oh, we're at 1,700. That's enough people that you don't know everybody. Correct. I mean, I, I like generally know their faces, but uh, but but I would say that um, there's at least a few dozen who I, I don't know their name. Is that a hard transition for you? Um, it is a. Um, it's pretty difficult. Uh, the mostly because you I, now over over a long period of time it happens very slowly, and so so you kind of evolve into it. But but um, I think the the thing that's most um, uh, it was once stressful, and now it's just interesting as an intellectual challenge is. Given that there's 1,700 people, how do you how do you find what are the what are your levers or, or systems for ensuring that you have a, a, a strong culture that ensures that people live by the, the values that you've you've established that ensures that we're going to be able to sustainably drive innovation like we could when we were only 20 people when we could just break through any wall because there was nobody saying no to somebody else like like at some point there is somebody in in our organization right now that has a great idea. That for whatever reason, maybe it's just maybe it's too costly, maybe it's the wrong priority. For whatever reason, that idea can't get executed. That stresses me out. Because There's a Tom Siebel somewhere that wants to start Siebel Systems, but Larry Ellison <laughs> yeah. says yep. no. Or Mark or Benioff, an, and an Ellie Harari <laughs> who wants yep. to start Sandisk, but Andy Grove isn't interested. Yep. And ideally, you want to keep that in house. Yep. Now you just made me even more stressed out. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even think it was going to be that dangerous where they became our competitor. But You're yes. welcome. Yes. Yeah. Well, in the top of the Siebel case, it probably ultimately worked out because Oracle just still got it anyway. But um, but um, I would say that you know there's so there's thousands of these ideas some everywhere in the organization do i know enough about all of them and uh, i was just in austin uh this week where we have a, a couple hundred people at, at an office and um and you know was meeting with the team and um and afterwards I had one of the, the the individuals email me with with some really actually critical feedback of, of something that we were doing that that i didn't know about because i i'm not you know inside of the the, the team that this where this person is experiencing this particular issue, and uh, and as soon as I learned about it, we, you know we, we pass it around to the the, uh, the people responsible, and we're going to change a business process to to hopefully improve what uh, what they were dealing with 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 with, with, uh, with customer service. And uh, there's hundreds of those things, and so it's like what why, like where are all the places where that I'm not where I need to know about something going on that I should be paying attention to or learning about some idea or some new innovation. So that's. That's, I think, the the bigger challenge of 1,700 people is just you're you're you don't you can't be everywhere, which means you can't know every idea, which means that you have to make sure you're building a system and a set of cultural values that hopefully those best ideas are are cropping up and people are executing on them. Well, it's it's certainly uh, fascinating to see you navigate this. Thank you. In a second decade. Yep. Of box <laughs> figuring it out. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll be able to uh, get through a couple more of these. Yeah. <laughs> thanks cool. for the conversation, John. Thanks. My thanks to Aaron Levy. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There, I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook or Twitter and search for John Fort and you know what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.